this is April 25th, 2021, and uh, this Taisho will be about uh, human identity, the, the illusion, actually, of human identity. And I'm going to kick it off by uh, reading from a koan. This is number eight in the Mumonkan. It's called Keichu's Carts. And here's the case. Uh, I probably won't read and comment on anything more than the case. Uh, Mas- Master Getan said to a monk, Keichu made a cart whose wheels had a hundred spokes. If you took off the wheels and removed the axle, then what would it be? Uh, this Keichu, not the, not the master Getan, but Keichu, uh, is supposed to have been the first wheel maker in ancient China. I'm going to turn first to, uh, a, some words of the Buddha. Uh, and this is, uh, this is, and before that, some, some words from, uh, uh, Nancy Wilson Ross in her book, Buddhism, A Way of Life and Thought. Uh, this, this, this koan is, is basically about the skandhas, you know, in the Prajnaparamita, uh, we, we say, uh, the bodhisattva of compassion from the depths of, uh, Prajna wisdom saw the emptiness of all five skandhas. Skandhas. I have gone back to that word over and over in my Zen career, and I'm starting to understand what it is. Um, here, this author, Ross, she, she says, skandhas in Buddhist thought consist of, and these are the five, forms, feelings, perceptions, mental formulations, and consciousness. Now, we'll get, we'll get to those later in a little more detail. Uh, but it's important here, she says, the constant interplay and interconnection among these five skandhas has the effect of giving a false sense of personal identity and continuity. Whereas in truth, there is no definite I existing by itself, independent of the ever-shifting relation among psychic and physical forces. Okay, this is, so this is, uh, you know, pretty much hardcore um, Buddhist doctrine um, that one confirms through awakening that this true self is no self. She goes on to say, uh, she she presents a a metaphor that the Buddha used. Uh, And this was of of a chariot The word chariot, the Buddha said, does not indicate a simple, single reality. It is merely a descriptive term applied to a number of constituent parts placed in a certain relation to one another. And just as no part of this aggregate can be separated off and called a chariot, so no part of the human creature can be set apart and called I. Chariot, cart,
Well, some might say this is cultural appropriation uh, on the part of the Chinese from the Indian chariot to their own cart. But that aside, that aside, let's get back to uh, skandhas. So, uh, trees, please try to <coughs> stay with me here because it's not the simplest thing in Buddhist doctrine. So the first of the five skandhas is form. That's just our our bodies, <coughs> the physical. The second is uh, translated as either sensation or feeling. Um, and that, I think, is doesn't need more comment. The third uh, is usually translated as perception. Uh, but in the, in the, in our chanting version of the Prajnaparamita, uh, we simplify a couple of these uh, for the sake of uh, making it, making the sound flow better in the chanting. So uh, we say, uh, form here is only emptiness. Uh, feeling, thought, and choice, consciousness itself are the same as this. So form, feeling, okay. And then we say thought when it's usually translated. The third one is translated as perception. And it does make a kind of sense. Uh, I can see the rationale for simplifying it, besides the sound, the rationale for making it thought. Um, and we'll, in just a second, we'll get to that. But perception. Perception, and I'm, I'm simplifying this because it's hard enough to assimilate all this in reading. It's even harder when it's being spoken. But Perception is basically the work done by the six sense organs. So the eyes see, the ears hear, the nose smells, the tongue tastes, the body touches, and the brain thinks. The brain thinks. So there's where the thought comes in. The fourth skanda is the most complicated. It has so many different translations and different aspects to it. Let me count the ways. There's, it's, it's usually translated as, as volition, meaning will or intention uh, or mental formations. Here are some others. Formative principles, conditioning factors, dispositions, tendencies, potencies, habit forces. You've all heard that one. It's all basically uh, karma. At the risk of oversimplifying, it's karma. Karma, let's say, karma causes arising from the past uh, that perpetuate them, perpetuate our karma. I'm turning now to uh, another a, a really good introductory book on Buddhism called What the Buddha Taught by Walpola Rahula. And uh, here he gets into this somewhat, this fourth skanda. He says, he first he distinguishes them from uh, number two and three, uh, 
Feelings and perceptions are not volitional actions. They don't produce karmic effects. It is only volitional actions that do so. Uh, Buddha famously said, O bhikkhus, O monks, it is volition that I call karma. Having willed, one acts through body, speech, and mind. So, this fourth skanda, uh, mental formations, uh, he, he, this Rahula th- gives us some, such as attention, will, determination, confidence, concentration, wisdom, energy, desire, repugnance or hate, ignorance, conceit, idea of self that's the that's the root one uh sometimes they say there are 50 some of these 52 such mental activities but what they all have in common is that they all either create karma that will then will have to sow one way or another or they don't create karma i don't want to linger too long on this because uh we can get bogged down in the weeds. So, that fourth one, uh, intention, volition, mental formations. And then the fifth skanda is consciousness. Now here I I think of uh, all the times that I've read in magazines or books, I've read that uh, scientists, I say neuroscientists, for the life of them, can't quite define what consciousness is. And uh, maybe because they're looking at it as some some thing, consciousness as a thing. Um, but, But what I gleaned from my study of these five skandhas uh, repeatedly is that consciousness as, as uh, one author put it, consciousness does not represent a permanent, unchanging element or ultimate principle of consciousness, but is simply the collective term for all our evanescent mental states. Evanescent mental states. And of course, they all are evanescent. They're all in flux. All of our mental states are in flux, just as our bodies are. I'm turning now to another uh, scholar in uh, the name of Ling. Last name is Ling, T-O Ling. And this is from his Dictionary of Buddhism. And uh, here... Uh, he talks about these five skandhas. Each of these is a group, aggregate, or bundle of elements. By the way, that's the literal translation of the word skanda. Uh, that of that type which are continually in flux. Thus, the physical nature of individual is at any moment a process or flux. I like that word process too or flux of physical elements, and the same with 
and then he goes to the other four skandhas. The same with feelings, perceptions and thoughts, volitions, and consciousness itself. The whole process constituted by the five groups is the human individual at any given moment of her life history. At different stages in that history, she exhibits different appearances and characteristics. This process of continual change is evident even to the eye of common sense in the difference between the individual as a baby, a youth, a mature adult, and an old person. Physically, the process of change is continuous, that is, on the, on the first skanda, form, and also at the level of feelings and perceptions and volition and consciousness itself. I think this this can't be repeated too often because we are so deeply, deeply conditioned to believe in the self as a self-standing entity apart from other selves. In one of the Buddha's most famous uh, descriptions, uh, he, he talks about not just the self, but all things. Uh, dharmas, dharmas, small d, dharmas, uh, just means things. And, and here he says, this is from the the Diamond Sutra, one of the favorite ones in Zen. This is what he says. Reflect that all conditioned things are like these. A star, a mist, a burning lamp, a phantom, a dewdrop, a bubble, a dream, a lightning flash, and a cloud. In the Hakuin chant that we do before every Taisho, uh, we, we, we recite his words, the cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. And then he also says, our form now being no form. And then he says, our thought now being no thought. And you could say with, those are two of the five skandhas. And of course you could say the same with the other three. Our feeling being no feeling. Our volition or karma being no volition, our consciousness being no consciousness. This is the, the other side of reality. There's the conventional side, uh, the, the world of thingness, form, feeling, perception, volition, consciousness. And then, as we chant in the Prajnaparamita also, uh, our form, uh, form here is only emptiness, feeling, 
thought and choice consciousness itself are the same as this. And yet, how we cling to identity, how we cling to identity. And now, as never before, look at the, the need to identify oneself. Uh, let me count the ways. Uh, we identify uh, with our occupation. I'm a priest. I'm an accountant. I'm a driver. And uh, this invites, to the degree that we're attached to our occupational or career identity, this invites trouble when we retire, as we all know. We cling to our ethnic or ancestral identity. This is really um, bloomed uh, with, the, with these, uh, these DNA, you know, like ancest Ancestors.com um, and the other ones, uh, where people are fascinated to go back and uh, see of their ancestry and all the ways that they're, they're more mongrel than they thought. And it's, yeah, it's, it can be pretty fascinating. Uh, I did this a, a few years ago and somehow lost interest in it. But yeah, ethnic and ancestral identity, uh, racial identity, of course, um, gender identity, now further uh, articulated through pronoun, choice of pronouns, uh, psychological identity, uh, the, 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 the type that we see ourselves as to the degree that we're aware of it. Um, with some people, that means their diagnosis. For example, oh yeah, I'm ADHD. Um, and then that can be, can become an attachment. Doesn't need to be. Um, our, our, our cognitive identity, our identifying with our IQ, or with our memory, a memory, or with our wit. I'm a funny person. I'm a really bright person. In this case, the cognitive identity, um, we're especially likely to enjoy criticizing others. I think of that line uh, from the Hako and Chant, uh, beyond ego and past clever words. Oh, how we can identify with our cleverness. Some people, not all of us are all that clever. Of course, clever, clever, uh, I know in British in British English it refers more to intelligence. We can uh, we have our class identity that we can get caught in. We have uh, 
we can find an identity with our skills or talents. It's a, I'm a, I'm a good cook, or um, I'm a, a golfer, a good golfer. That's who I am. Who I well, I'm a good golfer. I'm a cook. Political identity, which means partisanship. I think this is, as we all know, a huge source of conflict more than ever, more than ever now. I'm a Democrat. I'm a Republican. I'm an independent. There's another identity. There's a age identity, a generational identity. I'm a boomer. I'm a millennial. And even, even on a very common kind of level sports teams. I'm a Bills fan. Go Bills. Go Packers. And then all of the consumer products uh, that get get integrated into one's sense of identity. There's such a such a uh, strong um, enmeshment of consumer products with identity of every kind. Uh, now, to be sure, these are all, any or all of these can be valid. Yes, um, I am white. I am Northern European ancestry. Uh, I am a man. He, him. I am... A priest on this, that. Yeah, of course. There's, there's no need. We, uh, there's no point in denying who we are in the conventional sense. The conventional sense. We are all these. We are a whole mixture of different identities. The danger, the problem comes when we get attached to these identities. Anyone or more than one of them. So, why, why chain ourselves to any identity? And I think here I would hypothesize that it's because the self, this small s self, always wants reinforcement. At some level, I, I'm guessing at some level, every one of us, even people who have never even heard about Buddhism or the teaching of no self, every one of us senses that there is no ground to the self. There's no substantiality to it. Uh, there's no way to secure this self. Yes, it, 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 we have this this sense of continuity based on all these different identities, not to mention our name, just our name, that's another kind of identity, maybe the most common kind. Who are you? Name. But what is that? Really? It's some, a, a label someone gave us when we were born. 
or later, if we change our name, I think so often when in, in any, any dimension of life, uh, of, of, of uh, human, human behavior, if we see an, a, a, something in the extreme, then, well, what I do is I always suspect that it's compensating for something, something on the other side. But, uh, there's no question, but that, uh, that in one way or another, we all, probably mostly unconsciously, we're all trying to secure some sense of self when in truth, this true self is no self. Our own self is no self, as Hakuin put it. That's what awakening reveals. That yes, uh, in one sense, the conventional sense, uh, the sense of differentiation and the world of relativity, yeah, all these things may be valid enough, but what about that other side? Attachment to identity, uh, it occurred to me, is... is they say it's like someone with a hammer where everything becomes a nail. We, we, we re frame things in terms of identity. We, we react to people based on our identity to the degree that we're attached to it. And related to this matter of identity is uh, the whole realm of opinions. We've never lived in an age, surely, of course, I'll go out on a limb and say this, we've never lived in an age where people uh, relish, cherish their opinions, because probably because we've never, until... The last 20 years, we've never had uh, the internet and uh, social media to bray our opinions, our views. And that, be that itself becomes a habit for us. And then it just becomes, acquires a momentum, yes, a karmic momentum, where... We just do it and do it and do it, and it hardens our need to voice our our opinions. One of the words that uh, I've run across often in in Buddhist doctrine is is the word view. Uh, and I, until last night, when I was deep in books about all this, uh, I never could find what view means until last night where uh, I saw it as yes, what I had suspected. Uh, this scholar Sangha Rakshita uh, said it's, it's basically the same as opinion. Um, and the, the, the sutras and other Buddhist texts always, always warn about 
getting attached to our views, our opinions. The, uh, the Sanskrit word for opinion or view is uh, diti, D-I-T-T-H-I, um, which by all means, forget what you just heard, but I'm just mentioning it in passing because uh, it contrasts with what they call samaditi. Samaditi means complete or perfect seeing not merely a partial or one-sided view. Someone uh, not too long ago um, insisted uh, after one of my taste shows that, that there are, sometimes there aren't two sides to things. And I take that point uh, within the conventional realm, the realm of relativity, but Never, ever can we forget that everything has another side in the in the fundamental sense. So, complete or perfect seeing, not merely a partial or one-sided view. I learned only a few years ago that the Japanese have a have a phrase uh, for someone with this kind of one-sided view. That that the uh, literal translation is a plank-carrying person. And uh, here's the idea. If you're a carpenter or contractor and you're carrying a plank on one shoulder, you can only see in the other direction. So a plank-carrying person is someone who's uh, attached to one side or the other. It doesn't have to be the conventional side, uh, the side that everyone in the world knows of, of relativity. Uh, after enough practice, uh, it's, uh, it's meditation practice, when we've gotten a glimpse of the other side, the non-differentiation side, the side of emptiness, of insubstantiality, that can become its own attachment. That's also a plank-carrying person. Again, the danger of becoming attached to identity. In uh, The Three Pillars of Zen, uh, in Yasutani Roshi's commentary on the Koan Mu, uh, he's, he, first he, he had one uh, in, um, in his commentary on Mumon's commentary of the Koan, first he quotes Mumon. If you cannot pass through the barrier and exhaust the arising of thoughts, you are like a ghost clinging to the trees and grass. Ghosts, and now this is Yasutani Roshi speaking, ghosts do not appear openly in the daytime, but come out furtively after dark, it is said, hugging the earth or clinging to willow trees. They are dependent upon these supports for their very existence. In a sense, human beings are also ghost-like, since most of us cannot function independent of money, social standing, honor, companionship, authority, or else we feel the need to identify ourselves with an organization or an ideology or 
any of these other kinds of identity, an, uh, an occupation or a political party or gender or so forth. He goes on, uh, if you would be someone of true worth and not a phantom, you must be able to walk upright by yourself, dependent on nothing. No, that's that's uh, a tall order. Uh, if you consider all the subtle ways that we rely on forms of identity, um, we can see uh, identity as something that we we need to resolve for ourselves. Um, Eric Erickson, uh, the the great psychologist of the 20th century, uh, he had his uh, his what it's called his stages of psychosocial development, uh, and there's seven that uh, he presented, and the I won't go through all of them, but the the fifth uh, is identity versus confusion. Well, I'll just run through the others just to give you a sense of the of the uh, progression. The first is trust versus mistrust, then autonomy versus shame and doubt, then initiative versus guilt. The fourth is industry versus inferiority, and then the fifth, identity versus confusion, and then the last two, intimacy versus isolation, and Finally, generativity versus stagnation. This is this is a, an order of a human life, and uh, we 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 won't all uh, come to a resolution about any money. Some sometimes we get fixed, we get stuck in one of these stages or another. And uh, with respect to the fifth one, identity versus confusion. Uh, this is the, the most common thing in the world when we're young. Uh, as adolescents, uh, we, uh, isn't it true that we're all floundering for a sense of identity? Um, when we're young, we haven't uh, experienced enough of life uh, to be secure, <laughs> such as security can be. We haven't latched onto an identity as easily as, as someone who's uh, been through um, years of, of work, maybe different kinds of work, different uh, relationships. Um, that's inevitably where we uh, acquire a more firm sense of identity, firm as it can be as in, a, in a world of flux. But... Uh, it's a, these are stages and, and, and let's be sure if we're not sure about our identity, then that's worth working on. We can't skip over it. It's uh it's like what you so often come to understand that we can't transcend this small s self until we uh, firm up a sense of who we are. Uh, well, we can. People do that. They skip over any of these stages. Uh, or, but 
then it's at the at the risk of uh, trouble up the road. So whether whether name your form of identity uh, with respect to racial identity, well, uh, we we have to come to terms with it. Uh, we we really have no no choice, and that can be hard because identity is to a great extent based on our interactions uh, with others as we go through life. This is what makes it so um, exceedingly fraught uh, if you're uh, a a minority, uh, black or in in this country, Asian, um, where you may be getting all kinds of uh, a sense of skewed, self-worth based on, yes, our systemic racism in this country. Uh, So that's work that that has to be done. And maybe there's no no end to it in any any uh, absolute sense. So I'm not I'm not saying that this is an important work identity. It's just just trying to warn of the danger of when uh, we become bound to this as as ourself. Because to the extent that we're we're satisfied with these descriptors of ourselves, uh, we won't inquire further into this matter of self, small s, capital S, self. We won't experience no self, no thought. We won't have the the great sense of freedom that comes from experiencing no identity. Yet I, I always wince when I hear people say, I'm the kind of person who... Well, all right. You know, that's that's valid enough in some sense, but it just... The way we use language just um, reinforces this sense of solidity, uh, of uh, this illusion of substantiality. So yes, uh, stages. Another way to understand it is that these are these are um, steps of of uh, evolution. Do I dare say evolutionary steps? I think of uh, of. Uh, philosophical study. Um, Some of us, I'm one, some of us uh, had to find our way through philosophy to get to this dharma, this teaching. Uh, Francis Bacon uh, said, a little philosophy inclines one's mind to atheism, but depth in philosophy brings one's mind around to religion. Or psychology. There too, uh, I I was one of those of uh, delving into psychology um, on my way to, you know, the, psychology is the study of self, is the investigation of smell, self, small s self. This, I would, I would suggest, is what distinguishes it from spirituality. In psychology, we're still working on the level of self and integrating the self, whereas in, in spirituality, we're trying to go beyond that. 
by the way, with psychotherapy, I have to, I have to say that uh, while doing it, and I'm speaking again from experience, uh, many years ago, I dove into uh, several months of psychotherapy. While doing it, it, it does heighten concerns with I, me, my. And those invade our zazen. They did mine. And those months while I was doing it, I spent more time than I ever thought I would just dwelling on my parents, my siblings, myself. But I, I consider it a great investment uh, because uh, it can uh, it can pull out the wedges of unresolved emotional issues. That's a wonderful phrase of Hakuin's from the 18th century Japan. It can pull out the wedges uh, and can untie the knots that bind us to the self and open up uh, this spaciousness where we can, in the long run, our sitting, our meditation can be um, very much enhanced by resolving these things through psychotherapy. Yes, again, a stage. So, yes, by all means, be earnest about any form of, of identity that we're working with. Um, I think, uh, I think, especially of gender identity, when uh, when these words of Jesus came to mind, if you bring forth what is in you, what you bring forth can save you. If you don't bring forth what is in you, what you don't bring forth can destroy you. So we may very well have to focus on this I, me, my for a period of time. But as Zen practitioners, let's aspire at least, let's aspire to go beyond it all sooner or later. Because only that way can we really find freedom. So, just to uh, just to wrap up uh, with uh, going back to going full circle back to the koan, uh, where he asks um, the monk about this cart whose wheels had a hundred spokes. If you took off the wheels and removed the axle, then what would it be? That's our work in Zen. Seeing the emptiness of all five skandhas. Getting rid of our notions of self and other. And then, show me, what is it? Time is up, we'll stop and recite the four vows.